Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho oh Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're down the pub and wholesomely raising hell with our best friends and sweeties close at hand for high kicks and kissy times in Excalibur number 91. Baby, I love you. Excalibur number 91 was originally published in November 1995, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Mike Waringo, David Williams, Jeff Moy, Mike Miller on pencils, Mike Miller, Mike Christian, and Philip Moy on inks, Arianne Lenshuk and Malibu. Hughes on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney on editing. Welcome back to the podcast that hasn't been to a pub in a very long while, but had some good times the last time we took a tipple. I'm sure we're in for more fun today, but who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and teach and ramble about comics and pop culture in university-type spaces and around the internet, including at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where uh, I'm not actually sure what we'll be doing when this episode comes up, either wrapping up Hellboy or starting something else, but we'll probably be doing something awesome. I am also, as always, <laughs> Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I gotta stand up for my guy's honor here. He loves a pub. We know this. I don't know what got into him yep. this week, but we'll talk about it. I am joined as always by Mav. Please toast to your credentials. Cheers to the freaking weekend. I drink to that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, let the Jameson sink in. I drink to that. Yeah, yeah. Don't let the bastards get you down. Turn it around with another round. <laughs> There's a party at the bar, everybody. Particular okay, so I'm a big Rihanna fan. And I was trying to decide whether I wanted to open up with singing that or if I wanted to open up with just like, hello and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic round of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing, which is my other show. And, you know, a little note about the way I podcast is literally almost every podcast that I've ever done, which is a lot because in a perfect world, I am on every podcast every week. I am drinking almost the entire time. So this is normal for me. I have a beer right here in front of me that I'm going to drink throughout the episode. And I just, I thought it was necessary to mention this time because it is specifically apropos to the episode that we are recording. So that's where I'm at. But oh, oh yeah. Also, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav and I'm a co-host of Vox Popcast and this show and teaching assistant professor pop culture for digital narrative interactive design at University of Pittsburgh. You don't care about any of that stuff. You should instead <laughs> just rave about my wonderful singing voice. That's what I want to hear. And I and and I do not want to hear any negative comments. Just you loved it. That's it. <laughs> I'm jealous of your beverage situation. I've got like a 
raspberry cranberry LaCroix, and I feel very inadequate by comparison. You're welcome to come over. If you were to, if you really want to drive to my house, just have a beer, go for it. I mean, I'd love to have you, but just, I think you can do better. Like, you know, it's only like a 14 hour drive or something. We'll be, we'll be in physical space one time in the future. I'm sure. Again, it's been years. I know. I know, I know. We were gonna, we were gonna be in the same physical space that, like, the month the pandemic happened, because we would yeah, have been yeah. both at the PCA, the and then coverage. that didn't happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> anyway, uh, Andrew, please raise a glass to your own achievements. I beat Mega Man Two on the Nintendo Entertainment System in the Nintendo Hard era on three separate occasions with no passwords. But I wasn't wow. old enough to drink then, so I'm happy to <laughs> clink cups on it now. Uh, <laughs> I am Dr. J. Andrew Demann of St. Jerome's University uh, and Sequential Scholars, where, um, as Anna mentioned, we just launched our unit on Hellboy at time of recording with two banger threads from Anna, at which point Mike Mignola started following us on Twitter. Oh, awesome. So by the time this episode airs, Senpai might have noticed us. And that's kind of cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I know. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I partly I was going through old comics today and uh, then fell asleep after all the effort of doing that and then woke up to do this podcast but I did locate a bunch of my old BPRD and Hellboy issues and I have nothing but nice things to say about Hellboy but I was remembering how BD- BPRD continues for a very long time after the actual world gets destroyed and they're just walking around in the rubble and I thought about how much money I'd spent on those comics and I did get angry all over again <laughs> I'm not going to write that on Twitter, but that's the one negative thing I have to say about the universe. But that was sort of Mike was pretty distant from it at that point. So uh, let's just blame Scott Alley for that, shall we? Um, anyway, um, we are joined this week by an awesome scholar of comics and monsters and all around Rain Sinclair expert. The pod is delighted to welcome Rebecca Galt. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, it's great to be here. Having a great time. <laughs> We're so thrilled to have you. I'm so looking forward to talking about Rain with you. I was like, oh, we have Rain in the book now, and I really want to talk about her. And your name just sprung into my mind because, of course, you did the Cerebro about her, and I know what a fan of hers you are. So anyway, I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you, and then we'll get into some stuff with you. Rebecca Galt is an early career academic from Glasgow, Scotland. She has an MA in English Literature from the University of Glasgow and a Master's of Literature in Fantasy Literature from the University of Glasgow. Their research interests include monstrosity, gender and sexuality studies, LGBTQ plus studies and modes of fantasy. She is also the co-host of Out to Get You, a queer horror podcast. So Rebecca, we are so thrilled to meet you. I want to talk with you lots about stuff. And as I said, especially rain. But before we do that, or maybe in concert with that, because maybe it's related, let's talk about origins. So what's your origin story, Rebecca? When did you first fall in love with comics? My origin story with comics is Jean Grey. I, oh. <laughs> yeah, I um came in with the movies, uh, those Fox X Men movies. What a time they were! And just, <laughs> <laughs> just immediately was like, yeah, I I love this messy telepath telekinetic. Let's go for it. Uh, borrowed some comics off one of my friend's brothers who was really into it, and the first issue I ever read was the start of the Dark Phoenix saga. What a way to start! <laughs> And yeah, I don't know if anyone could read the Dark Phoenix saga and not be like, yeah, I'm all in on comics. Let's go. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, sort of whenabouts would you have been reading and watching those things? And like, what was sort of your journey from there? Did you fall sort of head over heels? Did you like <laughs> end up just going through the whole run of things after that? Yeah, so I kind of did. Oh God, I must have been about eight or nine at that point. Oh my God. Read that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was a young start and read that full first uh, Dark Phoenix saga. I had a great time. Uh, read a couple of issues here and there and then sort of came away from it for a couple of years, got distracted with other things. And then, yeah, went all in on event cinema with the MCU and was like, hey, I used to read those. And then went yeah. back and was like, oh, this this was good. I forgot that this was good. <laughs> and truly just started doing big reading orders from there on and just picking up anything I could get my hands on. Ooh, so what are your particular comics faves? Like I know X-Men is is a fave of yours, but yeah. particular X-Men runs or eras that you're, a fav- that you're a fan of or other comics in general? Uh, I mean, I have a soft spot for the Claremont stuff. Uh, when you come in with that, it's pretty hard to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I have such fondness for any comic that takes a big swing, even if it's a massive mess oh. for me. I'm like, I respect that you've tried to do a thing here. I really enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> like, just unironically have a great time with Chuck Austin sometimes. I'm like, uh. like there's stuff going on here and I respect that you're making an attempt at it and that's mm-hmm. more than I can ask. The that greatest Senna comic that can ever that is make is that best. I am bored. <laughs> that's the absolute best review of Austin I've ever heard. It's like, I respect <laughs> that you're doing a thing. Yeah I, yeah, I agree. I feel that way. That's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, okay. I, I just don't want to be bored when I'm reading a comic. Yeah. Like, if I come away from yeah. a comic book and I'm like, that was boring to me, then I'm like, yeah, that's not for me. So yeah, I read a lot of X books. Uh, I read a lot of the Doom Patrol stuff. Oh. Uh, yeah. Uh, some Birds of Prey. Yeah, I try to read nice. quite eclectically. I've always struggled to get more into DC because I don't understand timelines at the best of times. So yes. we're just kind of hoping for the best. <laughs> That is a frustration with me as well, because I just, as much as continuity doesn't make sense in Marvel, I'll always have the experience, like, I, don't know, I read, like, a recent-ish Martian Manhunter series, and I was just like, I don't, and I had to text with my friend about it, and I was like, I don't understand which version of continuity this is set in, can you explain it to me? Like, is this set in this version of continuity, or this, because I don't read that much DC, but I've read several Martian Manhunter series, and which things yeah. count, and which things don't count, yeah. and why do they have flip phones, but it's supposed to be 1992, <laughs> and I'm so confused and I don't know where I am or what my name is and I just it distracts me for the entire reading experience and then I can't evaluate the thing because I'm so hung up on this and I realize this is a me problem I realize no it's it's also a me problem because I'm like I don't understand what matters and what doesn't at Mm -hmm. least when it's like all in one continuity you can be like okay it's happened it's just if something doesn't come up then that part's being ignored and that's fine Whereas when it's multiple continuities, I'm like, has this happened? Does it matter? I don't know. I don't know what's I, happening. <laughs> I can help you both out right now and just just fix everything from now on. And this might change, but currently DC's philosophy of t- multiple timelines is what they call the linear verse. And it is exactly what Rebecca just said. If you're reading about it, it happened. Um, if it's not being referenced, it doesn't matter right now. The linear verse is every DC comic that has ever been published and every TV series and every video game all perfectly in continuity when they're brought up. That is their official policy, and that is how the comics work. 
Mm, okay, I can get more on board with that, I suppose. So, I can live with that. That is, liter- <laughs> that is literally, like, there's a storyline reason for why it's like that. You don't care. It is literally no, I like, don't need look, to know. That's fine. Don't, yeah, don't <laughs> care. It's just enjoy what you're reading. That is their, that is their official policy right now. So there you go. Okay, I can be on board with that. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's like asking me to ignore all of my deep love for the Ostrander Martian Manhunter in order to read a news story and not sure <laughs> if it matters. And I can't do that, Mav. I just can't. The but author is dead. It matters we'll if you want it to. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, we're getting far too off track. Let's get back to X-Men. I I wanted to ask you about your particular affection for the X-Men franchise, Rebecca. And yeah, like what particularly draws you to this kind of franchise of stories? I just, I just love that they all feel like a soap opera all the time. (laughs) It's a very high drama series. And I don't mean that in terms of the cosmic stakes, although obviously there is often quite a lot of that but also just it's messy everyone's sleeping with everyone and everyone's <laughs> mad at someone else because of something else <laughs> and everyone's fighting but it's all political infighting in the same group it's great i love it it's it's the theater kid of comics for sure oh yeah i love that well let me ask you a little bit about your academic study of comics you know what draws you to wanting to write about comics to kind of consider them critically like what kind of interests you about this space or these genres or this medium yeah so a lot of it comes from I can't turn the academic brain off so I look at yeah. anything and I enjoy it and I'm like hmm how can I write a whole paper about this mm-hmm. and like I don't need to do that for everything but I will <laughs> but part of it is also because I just finished up a, a master's in fantasy literature which was wonderful most fun I've ever had but in that we did a, a whole module on fantasy across different modes and mediums and one of those weeks we talked exclusively about comic books and how it sort of operates on a heightened reality sense and how it kind of changes how you interact with the story and all of that to me is so so fascinating I did a whole talk on how time functions in comics both on a a big timeline scale like no one will ever mention a year if they can help it because suddenly you've (laughs) you've tied a character to a year and it doesn't work but also in terms of quite literally gutter time how the gutters between panels functions as Mm -hmm. uh, time passing and all of these different like quirks of a medium and how it changes how a story is told is so so fascinating to me and I love exploring that Uh, so yeah I think it's a really unique medium and how it's used so every time I see it I'm like oh my brain is alive with thoughts oh yeah I think we can all identify with that it's that (laughs) it's that participatory nature of comics right but it's also the fact that so much of it is understudied right it's like diving into this into this ocean where you can really develop your ideas and that can be frustrating sometimes because sometimes I really wish someone had written about something so I could build on it but you know I just wish someone had done the groundwork so I don't have to do the groundwork but here we are and it is what it is I wish that there were like 50 other essays about sexy nightcrawler for me to build on the discourse (laughs) and really perfect this topic but Uh sadly (laughs) to really hone that argument right to the tip right to the tip appropriate appropriate (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, let's do our um, issue summary and then we'll come back and talk with you a little bit more about Rain and and your affection for that character because I'm looking forward to talking about Rain's official debut with the book this issue. We've got a fun one. This is a issue that I know is sort of a fan favorite for a lot of people, so we're going to have a good combo. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely quarter Pete Wisdom at the urinals and threaten him with violence if he tried to date you. Luckily, he's fictional. But to prove just how valiantly protective we are, here's a helpful plot summary. Excalibur number 91 opens with Kitty Pride and Pete Wisdom contemplating a Malibu sunset. See what I did there? Thinking about their relationship and how they need a night away from the crucible of each other, they decide to invite their teammates for a night on the town. Kitty invites a bunch of folks while Pete is enlisted to invite Moira, who initially believes she should probably stay home and keep an eye on Rory Campbell, who recently had his leg sliced off by lasers, but she's quickly <laughs> seduced by the fact she loves alcohol more than she loves Rory. Rain Sinclair is uncertain about attending a drinking establishment, but is cajoled by Kitty. Kurt and Amanda, meanwhile, are barely speaking to each other for reasons, and are as such similarly eager to get away. Except Kurt temporarily forgets he got over his insecurities about his appearance 15 years ago, but whatever. (laughs) Moira reveals that the pub they are going to was owned by her father and is now owned by friends of the family. Inside, drinks are ordered and camaraderie ensues, with a major topic of conversation being the blossoming romance between Kitty and Pete. In due course, pride and wisdom reveal that Pete wants to stay with the team. Ryan and Kurt tell Wisdom he can stay, while warning him that if he ever hurts Kitty, they will violently murder him. Some bevies later, Amanda, Moira, Megan, and Rain are found dancing on the tables, while Brian reveals he no longer drinks. Moira later reveals herself as a sad and angry drinker. After some heavy smooching and petting between the three couples, Excalibur returned to Muir Island, where a new arrival is waiting. None other than Peter Rasputin, aka Colossus, who watches Kitty and Pete canoodling on the lawn. I'm sure that will go very well. Anyway, we'll address that next week. For now, Rebecca, first impressions of this issue. Are you reading it for the first time? Are you revisiting it? What about this one are you particularly eager to talk about? So I am revisiting this. I did a full read through every Rain Sinclair appearance for of course. Uh, my appearance in Cerebro, which was, I don't want to say a lot of fun. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was something. It sure did happen. There's a whole 20 years of publication history in there where I'm just sort of like, mm-hmm. yep. Things are happening to this character, for sure. (laughs) But it is a favourite. Just, I think part of it is because of the fact that it is so low-key and decompressed. There's not a big, there's not big fights. Everyone's just hanging out. And I think that is part of the appeal specifically of these characters is that a lot of it operates in like the domestic sphere. And I think that's Mm -hmm. very fun. So I think, um, yeah, that, that always really stands out to me as unusual in a a superhero book but a welcome difference I think for a lot of people yeah yeah definitely an issue that I feel like is overdue in this book given all the stuff we've had going on lately um I'll pick up some first impressions from Andrew Mav and then we'll get back to we'll get back to decompression actually because I want to talk about that a little bit more as a topic but maybe we'll end up just getting into it now Andrew how are you feeling about this one I I really like this issue like I I was very happy with it I think once you sort of move Ellis away from his bizarre author surrogate fantasy that he's enacting with with Pete Wisdom (laughs) Um, and you have him actually take up the group mechanics of Excalibur. I think he's doing a really fantastic job. Wow. Wow. Big praise from you this week. I know. I that know. You've been... Big turn. <laughs> I was not prepared for that, Andrew. 
<laughs> but I like it. I'm glad that you that you finally had an issue that uh, appealed to you a little bit more. I know that the pride and wisdom three part romance was a little bit tough for you. So <laughs> yeah, I also love Rain. So just her being okay. here and doing more <laughs> makes me happier. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about her. We'll get to it. Uh, Mav, how are you feeling? I like it. It's not a perfect comic. It is an absolutely necessary comic. I've been saying for the last few issues that this is what the book is now. This is, you know, we have to accept that Ellis is going to be the writer of record. He's going to tell his story. Pete Wisdom is your new main character. Things like that. Um, one of the, and, and I mean, love it or hate it. That's just, that's where we are. So either get on board or stop reading is, is where, I mean, and that's mm-hmm. fair. That's a, that is a writer's right. What was. Matt, we don't have a choice to stop reading. We signed a blood contract to do this podcast for 126 <laughs> right. plus weeks, but yes. <laughs> right. But, but I mean, but I mean, reading it at the time, like when I was reading it live yeah, yeah. and one of the things that always made X-Men comedy work is the it's the interpersonal relationships what Rebecca called the soap opera-ness of it before and we haven't had a lot of that when the storyline is just two characters who are lovers you know falling in love in the last three issues and before that we had an interruption to do like an alternate universe thing and then we had this weird Doug Lock thing like they need a chance to either go to a pub or go to a baseball game those are the two options, mm. <laughs> and and it's how it did. It's how X Men build build friendships. It's how Avengers build friendships. It was necessary, and we hadn't had that. And here's where it is. And I I think it largely works. My quibbles with it are you know are little tiny details where I might differ with um like I don't love Ellis's portrayal of rain for character building reasons i i think she was regressed a little too much um you know in a time when he is progressing kitty i felt like he regressed her but that is my personal quibble with him on for how i like this character being portrayed and not with his ability as a storyteller as a storyteller i think this functions really well yeah that's fair well let's get into the decompression issue question a little bit more i also mostly enjoy this issue I, uh, I, okay, I'm going to say something so snotty and then I feel bad. I feel like the humor is a little <laughs> bit too juvenile for me. And I feel bad about saying that because of course I love juvenile humor. Who doesn't? I mean, speaking of which, I drove past a humane society today that had a sign that was 50 days of spay. And I laughed a lot at that joke. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so- <laughs> And so this bad. Is too wow. I know. <laughs> but still, I don't know. It just it read a little bit to me like a teenager writing adults going to a bar in a fan fiction and I just couldn't get that out of my head as I was reading it. But still, I'm there just that's me just being a jerk. Yeah. I, I have one in particular that I'll say that is like super fan fictiony, but yes, it it does have a little bit of that aspect of a this is not how people talk. This is how this is an impression of how people talk in order to sort of lay your characters on the table. But I still think, like I said, necessary. I just, I think that we needed to know what's the relationship going to be between Megan and Brian, between Kurt and Amanda, mm-hmm. between Peter and, yeah, like, we, we needed this. 
No, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Okay, well, let's talk about decompression issues just a little bit more. Like, we talk about how much we love the soap opera of X-Men and everything, but I mean, we could just read a romance comic. We could just read a soap operatic comic without superheroes in it. Like, what is the specific appeal of, like, a decompression issue, like an issue without supervillains, without punches, without big world-ending crises, and yet the characters are still superheroes? Because I think there's something to that where that makes it the unexpectedness of it or sort of, like, the fact that they are people who usually exist in <laughs> insane realities <laughs> existing in a very human reality is like sur- surely part of the appeal here. I mean, they're at a bar and they're people at a bar, but also some of the people at the bar are like robots and wolf girls and like <laughs> fuzzy blue mutant demons. And that has to be mm-hmm. part of the appeal, right? But I mean, I'll put it to you first, Rebecca, because you brought up the topic. And of course, you're, you're our honored guest. But yeah, what do you think? What is it about that combination of elements, about the familiar and the strange and these kind of decompression superhero comics i think specifically with superhero comics i think there's a specific feeling that those decompression issues tap into and it's that idea of oh they're just like me Mm. (laughs) where these characters are super heightened they are exaggerated for effect because you kind of have to do that in a book like this where the superheroics are such a, a large part of it so i think scaling it back and bringing it back to like like that very normal situation where everyone is sat in a pub and they're having a drink and a laugh and that's fine and there's talks about romance and talks about team dynamics you're like hey I've done this with with my work friends like it's an aspect of relatability that allows an audience to stay sort of invested because I think when you get too far away from the groundedness of it it's easy to kind of see those characters as the heightened versions they are and not as people so you kind of lose some of that investment whereas when you're reminded of the personal and the stakes all these people have with each other and not just with the plot at large if you want to call it that it lets you kind of stay in that moment with them and remember why it all matters to them and I think there's something really nice in letting everything calm down for a moment to give you that and remind you why you're on this journey with these people rather than any other one because there's a thousand books you can pick up and get a superhero story. Um, it's nice to remember what, why you want to be with these characters in this moment. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess maybe it boils down to sort of the secret identity or the dual identity convention in superhero comics in general, right? That point of identification. Like if Clark Kent was just Superman all the time, you know, we could yeah, invest there's... in that character as much as we do when... He's got this human life that's always competing with his superhero life. But I don't know. What's your take on it, Andrew? What makes this kind of this kind of space so appealing? I think I agree with everything um, that Rebecca just said. It's a great way to establish the characters, but I think it's also a very structural thing. It's two things. So the first thing you need to do is establish the consequences of the previous arc uh, in order to sort of punctuate that and make it clear how the characters have been changed by that and thus literally establishing the impact on their character arc. And then the next piece of that is to bridge towards the next arc by exactly as Rebecca said, establishing stakes for the characters, making you love the characters that you're about to hurt or challenge somehow. Um, so it's 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 very much um, um, a rhythmic thing to me in terms of um, giving the audience a bit of a breath, but at the same time setting the table for what's to come whilst, as I said, punctuating what has just happened. So it, it, it's very much a, like a mentally 
processing space, I guess I would call it. Terrible Ooh. way to describe it. No, I I was just going to say, Andrew, that I was like, man, everybody's so smart today. I feel like I'm so tired and everybody's <laughs> just coming up with these super smart things. I lo- I'm loving these. This is just like a conference panel that you're all coming up with these things off the top of your head. Yeah, I don't know. Mav, I'm sure you have thoughts about it because I know that this is one of your favorite type of superhero issues. You've said yeah. many times on the pod mm-hmm. that you love when they're just talking. So what appeals yeah. to you about it? The best episode of superhero television or movie ever you know in this golden age of superhero media the (laughs) best ever done is defenders episode number four um defenders episode number four when wherein you know the conventionally considered the worst of everything where everybody hates the defenders Mm -hmm. the netflix defender show and there's one episode where our heroes sit there and they have dinner at a Chinese restaurant. It's called Royal Dragon. It is brilliant. And what's okay, no, I love that it, episode. It's so I great. do too. I do too. I actually is, enjoy yeah, Defenders yeah. quite a bit, and I'm a bit yeah, of a I, defender. I also it. like Defenders yes. quite yeah, a lot. I, yes, so do I. I. I mean, again, I've written, written about it. I love it, right? But what I love about that episode is it defines something that um anna you asked rebecca what was it about the you know the the decompression episodes and i think it's not technically duality because i think we are very much entering a world where secret identities don't matter anymore oh um, yeah yeah i mean and, X-Men, and this that's becomes been... x-men it's yeah. always been an issue they didn't really think about it that much but because they don't have any friends outside of the group the you know whether yeah. your name is logan <laughs> or whether your name is Wolverine <laughs> is, is basically irrelevant because it's like oh you're colossus oh no you're peter right now and whatever it doesn't matter like everybody is just themselves all the time in the x-men and that had always been true right like i mean there are there are moments where they're trying to have oh i guess we'll hang out with our friends colleen wing who's also kind of a superhero you know whatever right <laughs> like awesome. i know yeah. but, but, but it's funny they don't know any regular people so like yeah. their so their secret identities have never really mattered but at this point we're at this point where they they so infrequently say the word shadow cat or nightcrawler or captain britain it's just brian and and kurt and kitty and this is their normalness is being these superpowered characters and what i think makes these things have work like hanging out at a bar playing baseball hanging out at a chinese restaurant is it shows the humanity of the characters beyond their ability to punch things the conceit of a superhero story is that i solve problems by punching them or shooting a laser at them that's that's what i ultimately do it's not so much how do I how do I reconcile the Clark Kent life with the Superman life? That's a Superman problem. Kitty doesn't have that. Kitty doesn't have a different life from Shadowcat and from and from Kitty Pride. What she has is the complexity of how do I get my friends to accept my new boyfriend who I get is kind of an ass, right? Like I get why <laughs> I, I get why they don't like him, but he's my new boyfriend. And I've got to deal with this. Or if you're Kurt, okay, you're dating my surrogate little sister now. I need to make it clear to you that I will kick your ass if you hurt her because that is a problem that is relatable whether or not I am just a guy who works at a bank, a guy in high school, or a guy who saves the universe on a daily basis. Like the fact that like, you know, I have feelings about you dating my little sister. If you are Moira, the fact that like, I'm I'm a workaholic who also has a disease and 
you know what, but my friends are in town, my daughter's here, and I just want to go out to a pub for a night. Like those are relatable problems. And they're, what we're doing here is we're saying we are going to have human drama, even when it's not a situation that we can just, you know, punch something. And I think that those matter a lot. And I think that the reason I, I'm so drawn to, you know, stories like Royal Dragon or this is because I enjoy knowing that you can be a titan and then and yet it still matters that you know you just can't get along with like everybody in your friend group like those those things matter i think for me i was i mean yeah that's very well said i just i think for me i was thinking a lot about that play of familiar and the strange and like why do i want to read this but superheroes as opposed as opposed to people who aren't superheroes and Mm Everyone who listens to the podcast already knows that I only think about Lucifer anymore. Anyway, I was thinking about <laughs> the appeal of that show in terms of, I was like, well, I like watching a show about somebody sort of dealing with family trauma and emotions and all these things, but I want to watch the version of that show where it's the actual devil talking to his therapist. And that's so much more interesting to me than if it was just a regular person. And it is that space of like metaphor where it's like a fantastical investment that's a little bit more flexible than if it was like a quote unquote normal person, because there's so many different things you can do with it. And even when I think about all these different types of mutants in the bar and the different ways that they physically represent and sort of the complexity of mutancy as a metaphor and the way that contributes to like your ability to take different meanings from this space and like think about the conflicts between normality and difference and of course sort of the the protective function of metaphor in general which again because it's flexible and we've talked about the good and bad of the flexibility of the mutant metaphor many times on this podcast but still it is this space of imaginative investment where these characters can mean what you need them to mean because of that distance of metaphor and i think for me that's what it is it's like when you have characters who are this these fantastical characters placed into very human situations the ways that they're both familiar and strange really comes to the fore and it really makes you think almost self-reflexively about the nature of this world and I found myself thinking about that a lot in again conversation with my current obsessions but I think it also relates to this comic book because all of the things that I'm interested in of course relate to each other I I need Anna to know that I started re-watching Lucifer based on your tweets about it (laughs) I love it I love hearing this it's so good (laughs) I I guess I should point out though I think um because I I'm rare probably not even among the four of us but like you know among our listeners in that i watch a lot of media and read a lot of media that isn't what you what we call genre based so because anna you said you know would you have would you have you know would we be reading this story if it were just regular people in a bar and well for me yes like because i love that kind of thing right like to, to me what makes the story interesting is the is very much the quirkiness of people in a mundane situation having to deal with regular people issues so like um i like it to be special people but i don't need it to be special in this sense like um like i'm a big fan of we've talked about this before i love the tv show riverdale before it got reading um i love i i I watch so much cw television because i I don't know if there's a before that show got ridiculous i think it kind of started no 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 okay so I i realized that not worse better the first season, sure. <laughs> it's just, yeah. The first season of Riverdale, we're talking about Archie having an affair with his with his teacher, and that's drama. The most recent season, they fought a comet and mm-hmm. won. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Cheryl Blossom so, as the Phoenix, apparently. Yes, yeah. Cheryl, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheryl Blossom um, developed Phoenix powers. They called her the Phoenix, 
and she got dark oh phoenix power, power and she fought a comet and saved the world because and now the, the last season is set in the 50s <laughs> time travel yep time travel yep. oh my uh, god i'm Obsessed, still on board actually but but, but anyway <laughs> yes uh, see it's good right so so but i mean but i'll also watch um i'll also just watch a, I was a big fan of like shows uh, of shows like the original 90210 or Melrose, like just like where it really is just the same story, but it's just people talking. I love a lot of indie movies where, hey, this is the story of two characters talking in a room. My favorite episode of Breaking Bad is the one where they, you know, are just chasing the fly. Like, like this is a kind of thing that I'm into. So I, I wonder if it's more the superhero-ness of it, of it, the, the genre-ness of certain things allows us as readers or a greater number of us as readers to digest sort of what is effectively the weird, quirky American, 20th century American cycle of short stories, which is, <laughs> which is a thing that happens in like, you know, just a Hemingway story. Yeah, I think there's a lot about settings and how they kind of differentiate our expectations. Uh, one of my favourite fantasy novels of all time uh, follows an accountant and she's an accountant for the Empire and there's a solid, like, I don't know, six chapters of her just doing taxis and working out what's going awesome. on that Love way. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm on board. I am wrapped reading about uh, fictional fantasy <laughs> taxis because it's removed from that sort of real world scenario and it lets you have a space to be more invested in it without having to think about like the actual nitty gritty of, oh, if I was doing my taxes right now. And it's like, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about fantasy taxis and how they are <laughs> inciting a war. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I it's not that, I mean, I have a PhD in literature and a minor in film. It's not that I never watch stuff that's not genre oh, sure, stuff. Sure. But in terms of something that I would go to for pleasure, yeah, it's almost always genre stuff for me. It's going to be, it's going to be action stuff or comedy stuff and i rarely it's gonna be to be to be it's perfectly be frank yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah anyway let's get back to this one because i want to talk about rain a little bit i love that con conversation about decompression mm -hmm. so much but yes rebecca i would love to put it to you about what makes this character special which is a huge question we've had rain kicking around this book for a little while now but this is when she officially joins the team so yeah take it in whatever direction you would like and i'm happy to let you talk about her as much as you would like but like what makes this character important to you what makes her interesting what draws you to this character i mean part of it is that I kind of just have to have a loyalty to any Scott that shows up in any media ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, am I going to go all in in Caledonia as well? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> Alison Stewart, let's be Caledonia for a while. Um, but I think also I do a lot of work studying monsters and monstrosity. It's what my final thesis was on, was the monstrous body and how we construct it. And I think Rain especially is such an interesting example of this because... She occupies this very fun little niche that was really common for a while, but then sort of died out. And that's the female werewolf, where it's less likely to see a female werewolf these days um, in yeah. comparison to like folklore and folktales, where that mm -hmm. was pretty standard. Um, not always the case, but pretty usual. And a lot of that comes from the way that femininity is constructed and the way that monsters are constructed and specifically the werewolf body there's a lot there about a, a gender spectrum of rain specifically becomes big and hulking and hairy and uh, uncomfortable to look at sometimes and i think it's so interesting when you compare 
that to the sort of waifish, nervous girl that she is generally. Yeah, it was that sort of old dichotomy that first drew me to her. I think she was so fascinating in those early New Mutants issues. I was like, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hitch my wagon to this character and we're gonna ride it out and what a ride that was. That was a ride <laughs> that I certainly chose to go on. But I just think she's so interesting and for so long was relegated to a position where she was very often regressed and I think that's a shame because there's a lot of growth there that I always see in her and I think it's always such a shame when people regress her back to the star of her character arc essentially which is what happens very often for her um and just once I would love to see it get taken all the way through to that end where I know it should go but I'm like everyone wants the most recognizable version of her which is the sort of repressed religious girl who doesn't know what's happening which is understandable in a medium like this but also I just I would love to see her grow past that one day well let me ask you about that a little bit because I sometimes wonder about that with various characters and obviously you're right I mean it's the branding it's the fact that we always return to the origin stories for characters in this medium this genre whatever but also I sometimes feel with monstrous characters in particular the potential of those characters sometimes doesn't get followed through almost because they're there's too much revolutionary potential to those characters because if it followed Mm -hmm. it through it would be too queer it would be too something it would be too deviant for this genre to kind of handle and therefore those characters kind of get regressed and obviously this is something i've complained about with nightcrawler many times too but like but yeah that you know the more radical potential of a character the more disappointing their stories are going to be sometimes and i mean is that sort of something that you've encountered with rain Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of her radical potential is in the fact that her and the wolf, if you want to separate those two sides of herself, are Mm -hmm. at odds for a lot of her arc. And when they are sort of united, it's done in such a way that it becomes almost worse, almost worse than it was before. Mm. And I am thinking particularly of that fun period where she was pregnant with the wolf baby that she coughed up in that. Oh... I was, I was thinking about that too because I think that was the most recent like extended encounter that I had with her and I yeah I, I loved the way Ryan Sook drew her at the at the start of the run and that was about the only kind thing I can say about it that was quite literally one of my notes I was like oh rain looks great in this arc and at what cost does that come <laughs> yes yes because yeah I think there's something really radical in this idea of her being able to integrate the wolf that she keeps separate from her as part of her personality she is very repressed from an objectively very traumatic upbringing and for me personally i feel like her wolf side is representative of a lot of things it's representative of the way she encounters gender and sexuality it's representative of the way she encounters emotions that she thinks are too difficult for her i think a lot of her anger lives in that wolf side of her but she doesn't want to display that because that's putting too much of herself out there but she has a lot to be angry about and i think she should be more angry quite frankly because i think it would be good for her and yeah i just think she would do better if the narrative had space for her to integrate all of that together. But I think you're right in that. I think it would potentially be too radical for something like this, which is a shame. 
Well, how do you feel about where she's arrived in this era of Excalibur? I mean, she has a particular visual representation at this time where she's partly wolfish all the time. She's got the sideburns. She's got her like visible mm-hmm. difference on display. And it's a portrayal that's always intrigued me. I don't know how I feel about a couple of the moments in this particular issue, which we can talk more about, but I wondered what your thoughts about this this era of Rain were in general. Yeah, I think the, the visual signifiers for her are very interesting. I like that she kind of exists in this half wolf half human state all the time because it is visually very representative of what I'm talking about this idea of letting both sides exist at once and letting that be visible I think Rain wearing her her difference and her sort of transformation on the surface is very interesting because it is something that she very often displays a fear of so I think that's a really interesting point but also often in little like that in little moments in this issue and in the sort of wider arc there are signs of this, yeah, walking back of that yeah. radical potential, even as it's visible, which I think is a really strange contrast sometimes because you feel like she should be at a different point in her arc than where the writing is telling you she is. If you gave me like the panel and the dialogue, I think it would be difficult to match it up if I didn't know that they went together already. Mm, yeah, yeah, I had. I don't know, like, how did you feel about something like the scene from the, well, the panel from this where like Kitty gives her like the dogish like head rub like yeah. I had feelings yeah. about that I it's I mean it's condescending for one and I think yeah. I mean I think that's an ongoing problem Kitty's had with the new mutants for a while anyway mm, she true. wasn't yeah, big on true. being part of their team from the get-go <laughs> um but it's also that Rain is very often she's characterized as the youngest one and also as the most naive and the most innocent. And when she's not, it's a hard swing to the other side where she's riding a motorcycle and speaking with an American accent. And that's also not really what you want from that character. You want her to have the space to like come to her own conclusions in a way that you don't feel is her parroting things back which quite often I think is what she feels like it's like her reciting oh well the Reverend Craig told me this or the Lady Moira says this and it's like okay but what do you think about it like have you ever thought about that so I think there's always going to be elements of condescension for as long as she is characterized like that and I do think it keeps her in that role more than it should but again it's the branding of it also it's very difficult I think to escape that one sure in it yeah no I get that I mean Andrew you already said at the top of the pot how much affection you have for this character so how are you feeling about where she's arrived in this era of Excalibur I completely agree with Rebecca again I, I think if we want like a like an academic perspective um, um Umberto Echo's the myth of Superman arguably the mm-hmm. first work of comic scholarship has a pretty clear stance on this. He talks about the the need for characters to have romantic production. So they have to evolve and change, but also they have to be mythological. They have to be fixed in order to be recognized. So we can frame this today as like the conflict between character development and intellectual property status. And this is a huge issue in comics in general, but especially in the X franchise. Yes, where even when, you, when you have Hickman doing these like landmark changes to the setting and plot, the characters are still kind of the same uh, and not really allowed to change that much. And I think that part of that is the, um, um, the Marvel Disney model with Marvel mm-hmm. being an intellectual property farm. So solidifying the character rather than advancing the character becomes kind of more important. And I think, again, exactly as Rebecca is saying, like, like this is what happens to Rain. She 
she's identified as the um, ultra religious girl in conflict with her own sexuality through the werewolf metaphor. Um, and that's that's a good setup. Like that's a really good setup. But as Rebecca also mentioned, like she's grown past that in some really cool mm-hmm. ways that it would be nice to acknowledge rather than constantly resetting her, um, which is frustrating to fans of that character. And as I said, she's a she's a really beloved character. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to it, it often becomes like just especially painful when it is these characters with like, especially like deviant potential to kind of upset some of the yeah. like <laughs> anti-patriarchal gender tropes of this space. To see like those characters reset can be just particularly painful. It just sort of reminds you of the limits of this space in ways that I don't want to be reminded of that. I want to think about the potential of this space, which is what I fight for all the time. Anyway, Rebecca, mm-hmm. please go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's also difficult because objectively the point that Raina's often regressed to is the point at which she was most popular and that mm-hmm. is those sort of early issues where she was despite sort of her ultra religious background despite being judgmental which she very often is she is also portrayed as being very kind and soft and warm and that doesn't carry through into some of her later plots some of them become so off the wall that a lot of that is left behind Mm -hmm. so sometimes i can see the appeal in regressing back to that because then you're regressing back to a time where it's sort of easier to have a blank slate and to make her likable again but it, it does mean that you get caught in that sort of endless loop and i think it is just so baffling that the one place that any of that sort of radical potential has been explored has been in that New Mutants movie. Mm, right. Yeah. Because in that space they made um, Danny and Rain explicitly mm-hmm, queer mm-hmm, and they were mm-hmm. together. And I'm like, in a movie that is so full of interesting takes, I <laughs> just managed to get that yeah. one so right. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard similar comments from people who are like, well, this movie got totally panned, but also, like, it did, like, queer Danny and Rain. Like, I was not expecting that. Yeah, so many, like, bad choices. But yeah, a big swing in that one that worked. So it's a weird one. Anyway, Mav, go ahead. Oh, no, well, I was just saying about, I mean, the New Minutes movie, it it takes choices were made and i will always appreciate that it was it it does it does not just phone it in like i don't necessarily agree with every swing but choices were made um um but not not about i feel like this gets us this gets us back to chuck austin all over again well yeah (laughs) yes very much so because there's there's choices that i very much do not appreciate in the in the new minutes movie but i appreciate that they tried they tried to do something here a, a lot of what rebecca and Andrew said and and yourself for me the thing that I don't like about this most is what I think is indicative of it I cannot buy this Rain Sinclair if she is choosing to go out as the half wolf half human girl I I adore this character and I would prefer a character that as Rebecca said had organic growth I was reading X Factor at the time I as I'd said so I've seen Rain grow past being that character as recently as like a month ago. If I if you're reading comics, because she because she literally walks out of X Factor and Index Caliber. So like I'd seen her be more grown up and hanging out with the likes of Havoc and Polaris in their dis- dysfunctional relationship, and she knows you know she's not as innocent as she was. She's had a relationship which might or might not have been sexual with Richter by this time, certainly. 
definitely she never progressed into uh, into any physicality with her relationship with Doug before he died. But it's ambiguous as to exactly how far and how far she and Richter went. But she's not so scared of everything to where, oh, my God, how am I going to go to a pub? She's past yeah. that. And if you're going to go back to her being that way, then it's really hard for me to have you go back there and then have that girl who was, you know, scared of her own shadow in the new units graphic manual graphic novel to be wandering out into a pub in werewolf form. She just wouldn't do that. She'd be, she, you know, she was terrified of that person. And if it's going to be, if her visual appearance is going to be a metaphor for her constant war towards being repressed girl and, you know, deviant queer, you know, woman or not like, but you can't have it both ways. And, and she's in this form, honestly, because they want the visual of her looking weird because otherwise it wasn't enough to just have Kurt there and Doug Locke's there too, but they barely focus on him in this issue. Like he's, frankly the weirdest looking one and nothing's really done with that um so they're you know they're literally like she's just looking like a wolf girl in order to show you how accepting the bar is but it doesn't service her yeah. as a character in this story so th so that was my my frustration with it like i i don't know why someone who has been to genosha is worried about people having a drink and that's who and that's who rain is right now and, and it 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 seems weird, but that's like my only criticism. Everything else, like I, I, I appreciate that this is Ellis's character now, and he wants to follow her in a different way. And frankly, in future issues, she's not going to be. She's not stuck in werewolf form. It would be different if she was stuck this way, but she's not. And future issues won't do this as much. So, like, I'd rather him try more. And this, and that was the one failing that I had with it is with the character that we're discussing. Yeah, and I mean, it seems clear that they wanted to play up that dynamic of the bar being accepting and everything right because that's where the weirdness of kurt comes in too because mm -hmm. he has the thing of like oh i don't have an image inducer i don't want to go to the bar and it's like that's out of nowhere when has this this yeah. hasn't been the conflict for 15 years but then it's like there's a there's a like a lampshading of it later where it's mm -hmm. like oh i don't usually feel that way that was just a moment i was having and you're just like okay yeah. like because i get that you wanted to underscore it but then you're walking it back because you know it's wrong and i'm like yeah. that was a little bit weird i was like okay whatever also, your literal girlfriend who has um, who has illusion casting abilities is standing right next to you. If you really didn't sure. want to be seen, she could make it not happen. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. and like you know that it, it's literally just there to you know to have that moment because Amanda can fix that problem for him if she chose to. She and you know, know he's just gone to bars with Brian like several times in Excalibur <laughs> yeah. previously. And, like you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. But look, basically yeah. everything Rebecca said about character regression and frustration this sure plug nightcrawler in there for me <laughs> <laughs> same energy same vibe same it's energy. fine i've complained about it before so i don't need to go on about it here but um let's uh let's talk about the team dynamics a little bit more and like the way that these characters relate to each other because rain joining the team she obviously has some uh pre-existing relationships with key members of this team including doug ramsey who is now doug lock um <laughs> and moira of course so i was curious yeah. about how you felt rebecca about sort of the potential of some of those soap opera attic dimensions kind of going forward
Robert and Excalibur. Like, and I was thinking just to as a general question for everybody, like what the team team dynamic is going to be moving forward. Because when we talked about the original Excalibur team, we talked about they're this team that comes together in loss and trauma and grief, and then builds this hopeful thing out of that, which again is a very generic team origin story, but still it was very located in the loss of their friends. And this was the thing that drew all of these characters together, right? All of these unlikely characters got drawn together by those similar experiences that happened at that similar time. So this is an effect like a stab and a reestablishing, but also for some characters joining the team in this issue, like an establishing of what the team is going to be essentially for the rest of the run. This is basically going to be our mix of characters moving forward. So I was curious about like what the team identity is here in terms of why are these characters on this team? Why are they drawn together? And of course, we know this is comics. We know sometimes characters are here for editorial mandates and the writers didn't choose these things, but still they have to make choices about how they're going to justify it narratively, right? And that's the challenge of being a, a mainstream comics writer. But but I'll ask you sort of about the reign of it first, Rebecca. Like, I don't know, is there potential for reign on this team in this space? How did you feel about this move for the character? On paper, I think it's a very good move for her. I think she is... It's a chance for her to... Firstly, she's back in... Scotland, she's in Kinross. That's interesting for her, considering how traumatic her childhood was there, and considering how she was quite literally, as we see in that more graphic novel, run out of the town with pitchforks. That was her experience of leaving home. So I think bringing her back here gives her a lot of scope for reflection on that. I think it also, if I was being very forgiving, there's part of me that thinks <laughs> that could explain some of that regression, right? Mm. It's like when you go home from university and you're staying in your mm-hmm. own like your old home and suddenly you're fighting with your parents like you're 15 and it's like what's happened I'm a whole adult why is this happened mm-hmm. and it's because you're in a space that has a lot of memories for you and it sort of impacts how you act so I think if I was being generous that's a reading that I think would be interesting to have but I also think that Rain and Moira's relationship specifically to me is so fascinating because it is positioned as like this mother-daughter dynamic very explicitly too but there's also a lot of and I think even more so with the Moira X of it all in uh, current comics there's a lot of questions as to what Moira's motivations are there and why she decided to take in that girl. And sometimes it's out of the kindness of her own heart, but when you know she researched mutants, you're like, well, well, is it? <laughs> or is there something in you here where you're like, yes, this girl is suffering, but also interesting. And I, I would have really loved seen a lot more of that on page, but then it's it's comics and we are in a, a tight page space and we got to take what we can get and things like that, so... That's interesting. I always had a little bit of that discomfort with the Moira and Rain relationship, and I wasn't sure if it was huh. just me or not. I mean, Why? I don't know. I, I don't know. There's just like a feeling that I got from it of like, they are super close and everything. And yet Moira's got that thing about her of like, you know, people are research projects to her. I mean, look what she does to to, to Rory. In this. She just like oh, leaves no, him behind you. sedated <laughs> while she goes well, on a drink. I mean, okay. <laughs> Rain, Rain, I, 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 think, I think Proteus would have been a better leaving Rory behind yeah no whatever I I know we don't care but (laughs) it's fine you know 
<laughs> and it's his own dumb fault. It's like, oh, he sawed off his leg. Yeah. Uh, you know, do I really want to leave him here? But I do like beer. Hmm. <laughs> I, I guess beer. I guess I'll pick beer. He'll be fine. Uh, my favorite part Just of this book is probably. Of Saturday, he'll be fine. <laughs> oh, my favorite. My favorite part is like, what's he gonna do? Where's he gonna go? He's only got one leg. <laughs> oh, it's harsh. Yeah, that was brutal. Oh, harsh. <laughs> and yet we're laughing. <laughs> horrible well, again, people horrible people because we to hate rory fair, i'm sorry we don't like him yes <laughs> we don't like him so you know. we, we don't like him but it does set like a precedent for Moira, right yeah. like <laughs> would yeah. i have done it okay maybe if it was rory but you know what if she's doing it as a professional it's like well that's not great it's <laughs> <laughs> not a great precedent to set the problem is he should probably be in a hospital like uh, like being yeah like the mm. the fact that there's that they treat this like a medical facility when the entire medical staff is just Moira. What's she gonna do? Not sleep and just watch him for the next you know around the clock till he's awake? I, I don't understand the you know. There's no alternative. Clearly, clearly there's a nurse here or something. Or or if not, then you are failing as a as a you know facility because and he should be in a real hospital. He probably should be in a real hospital. Is the probably. thing. Yeah, for in ver for various reasons. But um, um, can I ask you just briefly about the Douglock connection and whether you find this interesting or frustrating? Because it's going to be something, you know, their relationship is going to be something in this book moving forward. And I'm I'm sure you have feelings about it. So if you want to share any of those feelings, um, before we start to move towards some final thoughts, um, you're welcome to. Like many things with Rain Sinclair, I find the Douglock connection simultaneously both fascinating and so frustrating mm -hmm. <laughs> quite often and I've I, I encountered this a whole lot with Rain when I was reading so often the things that I was coming up against and the things that I found most frustrating were the things where I could see a lot of potential and a lot of really interesting potential at that and I imagine there are plenty of reasons why said potential wasn't expanded on or why it was expanded on in a very different way to where I would have taken it personally but <laughs> It's hard to look at something and think this could be very fascinating given Rain's history with Doug and everything that happened there. But for me, it just never quite carries through to where I want it to be. Yeah. And I don't know if that is a nature of a team book as well, where not everyone is going to get the spotlight all the time. Uh, so you do naturally have less space to focus on things. But it would have been nice to have, I don't know, a little bit more, I think on that connection but i don't know i didn't write the book so be it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's tough right because we already had like kitty's intense reaction to Douglock, and like yeah. we're gonna have a little bit more stuff but like so i can see not wanting to just kind of repeat some of those scenes with rain but i mean we already had the phalanx covenant thing too where we had her reaction to him there so i mean i don't know i, I don't know what i would have done but uh, i don't know <laughs> for me it relates to the character regression i just can't imagine this version of rain having an interesting conversation with Doug so I don't really know what I was expecting yeah it's I, I can't when you regress her like that it's like you undo a lot of the dynamics that have been previously established so you're like well what are you going to talk about <laughs> because you yeah. aren't the same character that went through those things because you he have died, been walked though. back so far the problem is he took a bullet for her you can't regress past that right that's the weird yeah thing. like he died because he took a bullet 
for her. There's yeah. like even if he got better and they believe this to just be Doug, so whatever. But like there's no relationship we have that doesn't start with the conversation. Remember when you took that bullet for me? Like that's <laughs> Remember when you <laughs> literally died for me? Yeah. Like, Wild, like, huh? <laughs> right. There's you have to start there and it be and it's weird that they don't. And I understand yeah. why yeah. they don't, but it's weird that they don't, and since they don't, it's always gonna be weird. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, before we go to some final thoughts, can I get us back to just the question of like, who is this team now? And I'll ask you, Andrew, you know, do you see anything definite that's binding this particular mix of characters together at this point? Does this issue help us with that at all in terms of establishing a team identity? I was really thinking through it for myself, and I'm not sure if I have a good answer, but maybe one of you does. Uh, for me, it's a yes and no situation in a good way. Like, I think we, we've talked a lot about the um, found family metaphor in X-Men comics. Um, and, and one of the ways that Excalibur had that but kind of didn't have it was actually the idea of the, that that grief support group that we talked about. They had this shared purpose. So one of the things that I really like about this group is that it's an eclectic group of individuals who are clearly outside societal norms, but it's all kind of just coming and going now. You're just sort of picking up people at random because this is like, you know, Kurt's ex-girlfriend and this is the <laughs> robot guy you found in the forest. Um, <laughs> and that feels much more organic to me and works better for a metaphor for found family, particularly within mm. a queer context, um, just because of how unstructured it is. So I really like that about the book. I don't know if Ellis was trying to do that, but in an issue like this, I think you really feel it. Uh, again, just this random group of strange people who, who sort of find each other. And I, I actually kind of like that. I, I think that really enhances the dynamic and a story with them all just hanging out together in a bar. I mean, it's not, it doesn't work quite as well for Kitty and Kurt, who are quite prominent characters, but still it is a little bit of that, like, oh, let's put a bunch of C-listers on a team. And, you know, yeah. that's interesting yeah. because they don't get the spotlight. And then that becomes kind of the identity of the book is like, and it works with it being the UK X-Men team too, that it's like mm -hmm. outside of like, you know, the main, line a little bit and they're sort of doing their own thing across the pond and i can buy into that i don't know how intentional it feels to me here but i want to buy into that i don't know how are you feeling about it mav do you feel that there's sort of an identity being established yeah uh similar to andrew so another and i don't know that i've ever mentioned this on the show before but another of my favorite books from this time period was justice league europe not justice league yeah. this is, so justice league international very very good book justice league europe also a good book that nobody read but me like literally i think if you check the sales <laughs> copies one copy a, a month for, for for the entire run <laughs> um, um and it it really is justice league international became a book about hey why are we focusing this team book on batman superman and wonder woman when we could feature characters that no one would normally give a book to let's try and see what happens with fire and ice and booster gold and 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 guy gardner and and blue beetle and see if we can make anything out of them that was jli and then justice league europe was what if you weren't even good enough to be in jli and it's and it's not like because if you actually look at the 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 opening lineup for justice league europe is Animal Man, Captain Adam, Elongated Man, The Flash, who the logic was we needed an A-lister and The Flash can be anywhere he wants, so he just decided to join both teams. Uh, Metamorpho, <laughs> Power Girl, Rocket Red, and then Wonder Woman, who's there for like two issues and it's like, I have better things to do, right? Like, so, so like... <laughs> 
like what made those books work is because they're just the quirky C-listers, you toss in a Flash and a Wonder Woman, much like you toss in a Kitty Pride and a Nightcrawler, you know, so that so that someone will even at least try and buy the books. You need you need Nightcrawler so that like young Anna wanders by a newsstand and says, I recognize that one. Maybe I'll give this a try for a buck and a half. Like that's that's why he's there, right? But like no one's looking for Doug Locke. No one's looking for Brian. No one even knows who Megan is. Like the only way you could possibly know who Megan is Uh-oh. seven. No, I mean, I mean, we like her, but I'm just thinking <laughs> reading this, reading this You're at the right. time, like the only way you could know who Megan is, is if you've been reading Excalibur for seven and a half years, that's where she's appeared. She's barely been in any other X books. And beyond that, you had to have been reading Captain Britain, which wasn't available in the States, you know, for the most part. So it really is kind of a this is a chance to try something new. And it's what I it's what I always loved about the book going back to the Claremont days. And I I think that after a year and a half of trying to force this to be not quite uncanny, not quite adjectiveless, not quite X Factor X-Men, you know, which is what we've been for the last year and a half. This is trying to find its own place again. This is a this is a look, we're going to do something different and it's going to be kind of weird. It's going to be some growing pains. We're going to you know, you're not going to love everything, but we're going to try and tell our own story. I think that's admirable. Yeah, I mean, I am grateful that they're like heading for some sort of identity after again, you know, after the limbo that the we were D-list stuck in for so long. Team. Yeah. yeah, and like I am happy to see more of the team involved in this issue and for it to not just be the, the Pete Wisdom show. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> let's go around and do some final thoughts because I'm sure there's all something that we want to circle back to or something that we didn't get a chance. So I'll come back to you first, Andrew. Anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't got a chance or anything you want to go back to? Yeah, there's um, a scene in this comic that I, I adore and I don't think I've seen in like any other comic i'm speaking here as a lame person who doesn't like to drink uh doesn't like sauce on most of his sandwiches and does not (laughs) aggressively want to dance at a wedding um and people don't respect those boundaries they're very much like oh i'm gonna help this shy person no please don't help me i'm very happy at my table (laughs) yeah so moira accommodating rain's boundaries i thought was a really sweet scene and it, it was a very maternal scene as well at the same time but just in general showing that respect for her um, showing that understanding uh, of where she is and what her comfort level is. I thought it was just beautiful. I love that scene. I liked that too. I wish that they hadn't made her think they weren't going to do that before doing it. But, yes. Um, yes, but that's valid. <laughs> I was happy that they did it. It's Well, it's a similar thing when, when Kitty is like, oh, yeah, uh, obviously it's fruit punch. What did you think I was going to do? Force you to drink a beer? And it's like, well, I, I hope not, because what are you, a monster? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Why would you have done that in the first place? Please like, don't she's imply that you would have. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, yeah, but it is weird because it's there for us, right? It's it it's there to like let us know that she cares, I guess. <laughs> it is weird because yeah. it, it's yeah. followed up by that hair scrunchy thing, which I hate. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's supposed to be cute but uh i don't know anyway uh mav what were what were your final thoughts on this one uh last page peter Rasputin's here mm-hmm. <laughs> which um i love i love it so at this point seven and a half years ago when we started this podcast but <laughs> seven and a half years ago for them uh in in, in real time a last minute decision was made to not include 
mm -hmm. uh, Colossus on this team. He was supposed to be on the and team. Amanda. And, then, and Amanda. And Amanda. Yeah, but well, I'll get to her in a second. Uh, but like mm -hmm. with Colossus, Colossus was supposed to be on this team. And in a literal afterthought, Magic shows up and teleports him from one place to another so that he can be in the X-Men team instead of, I mean, I mean, like if you actually go back and we talked about this on our first, you know, on our, on our episode zero magic shows up and, and says, uh, and Peter's like, Hey, I would like to go be with the X-Men so they can die. And I would like to be there. And Ileana says, okay, sure. Big brother. And she teleports him to there. And, and he literally just kind of shows up in a stepping disc and joins the fight. And, and that's how he gets there. It is weirdly done. And we've talked about on this show, how different would this book have been if Peter were there from the beginning. And unlike Amanda, like I think Amanda being there from the beginning puts like weird, you know, complications with, you know, what would Megan and Kurt's relationship have been? What would, you know, would we have even needed Cerise during that time if Amanda was around? And so those are, those are weird complications. But with Peter, Peter and his absence allowed kitty to grow into a different person if peter had been there then the book necessarily would have had to have been are they going to get back together or not because that's where they were and that's what that's where those characters were when this story started seven and a half years ago and even when we had peter come back and like i'm gonna stay an acolyte you know thank you i still love you i'll always love you i'll always love you too we have our kids goodbye but we but we're in different places that is a that is a, a a level of growth that Kitty got to have in front of our eyes and Colossus ha got to have off panel mostly, but that I appreciate as a reader. So keeping him largely off the page, and, and he's not even really been an X-Men that much. He's been there, but not that much. Keeping him largely off the page for the last seven and a half years so that we can have this moment where Kitty is making out with her new boyfriend and, oh shit, Colossus is here. For just one page. <laughs> like, like, I like I mean, I know what happens next issue because I've read it. But like, as a cliffhanger, like, there's no other way to look at this other than, oh, shit, that's her old boyfriend. What's going to go down? And that is the best cliffhanger I can possibly think of for this book, which has largely been a non-superhero book for the entire episode, right? Like, the entire issue has been just these interpersonal relationships and them having very human feelings. And here, it's different. It's not that. It's a, it, it's a, oh, we're about to have a hell of a fight between, you know, uh, an iron person giant and a squishy human guy who I don't like. Um, this is going to be real interesting. And, and that's where I'm left. And that's where I'm left with it. And what really, really makes it work is earlier in the book, you had a scene where surrogate big brothers who are, who do not have a romantic connection with Kitty say, if you hurt her, we will kill you. And they scare Pete wisdom in that moment. And now I'm suddenly left on this with a one splash page where there is a guy who last I knew was a you know was a minion of Magneto who has a very real reason to kill Pete Wisdom and so intriguing. The other side of that though is the even though I just said that that scene with Brian and Kurt makes it work. I hate discussions at urinals. That's just not how guys talk. It's not <laughs> <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> not reasonable urinal conversation. Uh, it's, it's a just, rule. 
it, it, it isn't. But 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 given that we're gonna do it, and and Ellis knows this. Ellis knows that you know, like in in TV shows and in movies and in comics, you have all these really really interesting conversations at urinals. That's complete fiction. It does not happen for any like that's not. But given that you're gonna do it, I love that it brings us to this Peter. So that's that's where I'm at. God, I'm just like sorry. I'm just remembering like <laughs> I was at this like fancy corporate place I worked for a while, and I took mm-hmm. my then I took my then guy to the holiday party, and I remember him coming back from the bathroom being like, "Whatever corporate guy like talked to me at the urinal, it was so upsetting." <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> it was so funny to me. It just brought back that memory. Be. You look directly ahead. <laughs> That's how urinals work. <laughs> It was like the sales guy in like a three-piece suit too and he was just like why was he selling me things at the urinal anyway um my final thought was just gonna be about i don't know why kurt and amanda are mad at each other that was completely off yeah. panel and are they? i they're not are they, talking are they just, i thought they were just bored i mean are, are they because they because they they're don't just, have they're sick they of having sex with each other now like what why are they bored i no, i i i, I I don't know because it, it did not seem like they were angry at each other. It just seemed like they are boring people. Like it's just uh, I, I didn't really understand it. Like it's not about Rory. It's not about, you know, Kurt seems to be upset about, you know, life. And Amanda's just like, oh, yeah, let's go. I mean, I don't know because it, it doesn't yeah, like, like next the, issue. It's not better. So it doesn't like I don't think there's a moment for them to be mad at each other. Well, I know, Last but it doesn't make any sense them being yeah i know like last issue we saw them and she was arriving and they were flirting and they were making out and they were super into each other and like this issue they're just like huh well we're bored or angry now and like that really came out of nowhere and i get that he felt the story needed that but yeah (laughs) the sex was exhausting and that this is just a this is just it's early morning they just you know they're worn out (laughs) i don't know (laughs) yeah it it is weird just would have made a lot more sense to have them in a domestic situation or something than because this is implied that like they went from kissing sexily when she arrived and him talking about how much he loves her thigh-high boots and then they just went to the kitchen and sat down and stared at the floor and couldn't think what to do next and i'm like no. that doesn't seem like kurt and amanda i don't understand this no. they, 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 figured out they, something they, to they, do. they banged for 14 hours and they're exhausted that's what happened like, sure just, i accept the that. coffee I accept is, that. they're waiting for the coffee to kick in that's it. <laughs> i accept that anyway rebecca anything that you didn't get a chance to talk about or that you would like to circle back to in closing um speaking of this isn't how people talk. I have to talk about <laughs> Scott. Please, please do. Please do. I was, are we going to talk about groundskeeper Willie Moira? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so, it's so bad. <laughs> there are so many words in an order that I have never heard them said ever. <laughs> it's truly baffling to me. <laughs> All of it is pretty bad but specifically the scene where Mara's drunk out of her mind and like leaning over the bar none of none of that is anything none of that's anything (laughs) that's that's nothing that's a nothing bubble of dialogue there's nothing being said there and the fact that there is translation boxes at the bottom is (laughs) like I have to laugh I do but it's also that the translation boxes are not correct to what's written in the dialogue Oh, yeah. which I think it. makes it worse. It makes it worse because I'm like, cool, you actually just don't know what you've written here, which is fine. That's fine. Not everyone is Scottish. But if you're good at writing Scots, maybe you should consult with a Scot. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been having feelings about Ellis's writing. I mean, I know Andrew's been having feelings about Ellis's <laughs> writing of Moira, but I mean, is this like, you know, an English person really playing up some offensive Scots stuff? Because I've been feeling that since Ellis took over and I not sure how someone who is Scots would react to that. I think quite considerably. It's like that um, earlier panel of Pete where the bartender asks him if he wants ice and he goes, what are you, some kind of pervert? I thought this was Scotland. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Okay, I see where this is going. Uh, I think quite often it can feel that way, and I don't know if it is an English an English person writing Scotland, and it's a lot of stereotypes coming to the fore, or if it's just truly like someone who has just never been to Scotland, which happens. That happens, <laughs> but I feel like I see that more in like Claremont Scots. Claremont Scots is also not <laughs> Scots, <laughs> but yeah, it feels yeah. slightly less mean spirited. Yeah. It yeah. feels more like I'm I, I genuinely trying. trying to do sc yep. to do Scots, and it's like you're not doing Scots, but I appreciate the effort. <laughs> this feels a little mean <laughs> in places, yes. and I'm like, okay, I get it. It's fine. Well, yeah, and he puts it a lot of the time, like in Pete Wisdom's mouth, which you know, like I get yeah. Pete's an offensive character, but also he's your author surrogate, so <laughs> so how much of this do you mean? And hey, uh, the Scott English divide is all this time, and we give as good as we get, so I guess mm -hmm. I can't complain that much. I don't know. Had me thinking of like the Garth Marenghi's Dark Place episode about Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody knows that as a reference, anyway. Uh, it's just yeah, the Scots truly. It's not offensive, it just made me laugh a lot because I'm like, none of this is anything. You try to do something and it's nothing and that's fine, I guess. <laughs> that's very charitable of you. Um, just in closing, I'm going to do a brief letter from the Sword Strokes letters page. Um, this letter is from Erica Burke. Uh, I thought it was an interesting one since part of our Pete Wisdom convos have been <laughs> talking about his crush ability so here we go dear sword strokes this is my first time writing to you guys so prepare yourselves your book is my favorite x book and i collect them all you guys are great not only are the writers and the artists great but you guys continue to surprise me when you pulled pete wisdom into the book i had to write please don't get rid of him he is a breath of fresh air in the book at first i thought he would be a cheap gambit ripoff with the trench coat and all but i found this guy is very different from gambit pete wisdom has a lot of depth and his great mutant power is just a bonus thank you also for his research and involvement with Kitty. She is my favorite ex-character and it is good to see that at least one guy notices her for the catch that she is. It is about time that she gets over that loser Peter Rasputin anyway. Hey, the guy didn't know the good thing he had, so tough. I think she and Pete Wisdom make an awesome couple. Well, I have taken enough of your time until Kitty slaughters the whole team and runs off with Belasco to rule Limbo. Make mine marvel. Signed, I swear that. I'm not one of <laughs> <laughs> I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again.
All right. Um, we will leave things there. Um, other than to say, Rebecca, thank you so much again for joining us. So just delightful conversation. I enjoyed every single second of it. Um, before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you. So if you would like people to find you online, whereabouts can they find you and wreck your projects and and things so people can go check them out? Uh, yeah. So on Twitter, if that site is still standing anymore, uh, I am... <laughs> Phoenix Force, replacing that own force with a C, because the person who has the Phoenix Force handle has not tweeted since 2009, and I'm really mad about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On Instagram, I'm RebeccaGalt7, and like I said earlier, I co-host a queer horror podcast called Out To Get You. Uh, We are working on editing up our first slate of episodes, which has a real killer roster of guests. Uh, We have Valentine Smith, uh, we have Gretchen Falcon-Martin, Lila Sturges and Zoe Tunnell all coming on to talk about their favourite horror movies. Wow, uh, that sounds like a dream team. Amazing. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, So you can find the podcast socials at Out To Get You Pod. I am doing a couple of conference appearances in the upcoming months, which I will be tweeting about, mostly talking about monstrosity in the body. And I have a really exciting article coming up with the British Fantasy Society about one of my favourite D&D actual play shows, which I am really excited about. That's all my upcoming projects. But yeah, it's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> I really, really, really enjoyed it. I'm just in such a good mood after this convo. I'm going to be living in it for days. Thank Thank you so much. Next, we will be covering Excalibur number 92, I Want You, in which a certain colossal Russian with a temper throws a tantrum about his ex's taste in men who taste like cigarettes. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find those via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest or a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, Gosh gollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at gosh gollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Mav, for another raucous convo thank you rebecca for taking a tipple with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly epic theme song play us out